is sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. We are going to end the international embarrassment of the United States of America, our great country, being the only major nation on earth not to guarantee health care to all as a right. I think spying on a political campaign is a big deal. It's a big deal. You're not suggesting, though, that spying occurred. I, I think there was a spying did occur. Yes, I think spying did occur. It starts with family and faith, or faith and family. And we need more of that. And then if you, if you don't restore the family, it's hard to correct any problem. It's hard to produce anything positive. And now, Stacey Washington. <laughs> okay, I'm, I can't help myself. I'm laughing because, uh, well, first of all, I'm laughing because I have a little bit of joy in my spirit because, like I said, I went to one of the Thrive events today and I took daughter, the youngest. She's just been hanging 10. You know what I'm doing? I'm buttering her up because there'll only be her left in like less than six months. The second child, the only son, will be running off to college and living his life. And I've been reading all the blogs from the other moms talking about how the sons don't communicate. The daughters text. But the sons just don't they, don't, they don't do anything unless you sent them a box of goodies. They're just not communicating. Now, I, it's hard for me to believe that our son would be like that. But regardless, I've been looking at this and thinking, it's just Madison. And she's always been a little pip, just, you know, a little joy. But um, it's awesome to get to hang out with her and have a lunch and go and listen to not just the pro-life message. It was a supercharged event today that just, you know, sometimes you, you interact with people. And Bridget Van Means is the head of Thrive here in St. Louis, and it, it's all over the country now. They've they've now got centers in multiple states. Um, but when you see the the this inception at 2009 when she took over the organization, and then see the growth and the pattern there, and you and you hear her passion, and when she shares about what God has done through that organization, because it's it's kind of about her because she's obedient, but it's really not about her. It's about him. He, he's the one that makes things possible. He's the one that clears the path. He's the one that directs our steps. He's the one that makes it possible for us to do amazing things. And so, ah, just so fantastic. Um, so I'm a little giggly off of that. And also it's overcast, but it's still, it's not snowing. It's not hailing. And so I'm still going to praise God for this weather because as long as it's warm, I'm good. Uh, we have a caller. Let's go to the phones. And if you want to call in, I know we've covered a lot and I still have so much more for you. So stick with me. Um, the call lines are 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. Adrian in California. Hey, uh, welcome to the show. Hi, Thanks for calling doing? me. Good. How are you? Thank you for having me. Sure. Uh, well, I actually live uh, in a city called Pico River. It's about 10 miles uh, east of Los Angeles. And, um, I wanted to, two things. One, I wanted to disagree with you on what you said when you were here in California and how, uh, Latinos were kind of looking at people who were, who were kind of thinking, well, maybe they'll know I'm legal or not. That's no, I'm only talking about the ones that because... I saw. I, I'm only talking about the oh, ones yeah, I saw I know, online but... at one place. Not all Latinos. I couldn't possibly have seen all, all right. of the Latinos. So what I want to say is they, they, the the mentality of uh, the Latinos here in California, I'm, me being one of them, is there's a sense of entitlement here that this land is theirs, and so they belong here. And oh. the people who don't agree with them are the ones who don't belong here. I actually ran for school board here in Pico Rivera um, last last year, and I ran up against two communists, two 
very openly communist. Now, I'm a conservative. I'm a rare breed here in California, and I'm Christian. Um, I had I had teachers at my kids' schools, you know, begging me to run because of my views and I'm a law enforcement. So I ran. I walked every day. I did, you know, all the stuff you got to do and mm-hmm. spoke with people. And um, that side, the left, they, they, well, they're Democratic Socialists, by the way, but they, they won't say it, but they'll say on their webpage that they, they support communism. Their, their heroes are Che Guevara, you know, Stalin, Ho Chi Minh, uh, guys like Castro, guys like that. And um, they were, through the ethnic studies here in California, they were teaching that in the classrooms. So here in uh, Rancho Unified. They were teaching mm-hmm. that in the classroom. So, yeah, it, it got really bad. So I ran. Um, I'm, I'm half white and I'm half Mexican. I'm Irish and Mexican. I grew up in East Los Angeles. If you know anything about L.A., that's the Hispanic community in Los Angeles. Um, so none of my views, I've never been around uh, white people per se. My, my mom, they you know, Hispanic. We grew up in a Hispanic neighborhood. So I, I consider myself American first and most, but I, I identified more with the Latino community. Um, so, you know, walking and talking to the parents around the city, I, everybody has their have giving their support. They were going around. This is, people need to wake up in California. Democrats need to wake up in California. I think across the country, you're seeing it in New York as well, the Democrat Socialist Party is taking over. These people don't care about Americans. They'll, you know, the, the Nazis had a propagandist that did it best. He said, accuse those of which you're guilty of doing. And they, they did that perfectly. They know these people are well-trained. They know what they're doing. There's an organization called Union del Barrio. It's a, a, a radical socialist group that um, caters to the Latino community. And they went around saying that I was a white Trumpista. I was a Nazi, a white supremacist. Um, I wanted to deport all illegals. I wanted to stop funding for, for kids who are here illegally in the schools. And they did it perfectly. They, were, they, they got people believing them even after I've talked to them. And I showed them proof who they were. They don't care. See, the problem here in California is people are not educated. You don't have enough media covering the truth. People don't know the truth. They believe what they're being told by the media, which is, which is totally on the left. And it, it's getting to the point to where I see it taking over little by little in every county in California. And if people don't wake up, we're going to have a Venezuela on our hands. We're going to have a point where there's, there's going to be no comeback. And that scared the crap out of me for my kids. Yeah, I, I. So what you're what you're sharing is what should be on the news every single night. It, it's it's amazing how when people get just a little bit of truth. First of all, you crave more of it, and second of all, it changes the way you think. The truth changes the way you think. But if if like you said, when people came around and told them that you were a Nazi and you wanted to deport everybody, and they believed it, if once you're deceived comprehending the truth becomes almost impossible unless you have a heart change. And so, you know, we need, we need so many different things, but more than anything, we need Jesus Christ because when your eyes are sealed off, when your eyes are, are, you know, you you can't see, you've been blinded by lies and deception and you need the truth of Jesus Christ to be able to clear all of that out so that you can actually comprehend the difference because it's hard coming out of something like that. I'm speaking from experience when, when, if you're living as a Democrat and you're voting with the Democrats and you believe that abortion on demand and socialism and all that other stuff, you're deceived. And then when you come out of it, it's a, it's a little at a time. I mean, some people have an instant moment, but usually it's one thing you're like, wait a second, I believe that that's not right. And then you start researching and looking and questioning. And then before you know it, you're like, well, this is, 
this is more than just one thing. I, I want to say, first of all, thank you so much for calling the show, Adrian. I, I appreciate the information you just shared. It's eye opening. I wish that I wish you were on CNN sharing that. You know what I mean? I just you you taught us something today. But I wish desperately, even though CNN's audience has been totally gutted um, and also MSNBC is suffering, I still wish that the people who are still watching that would hear what you just said. It's like, it's so sad to me that that's what's going on. Because if anything, if, if we were in a situation where we knew we could never deport another person, my wish for those people who are here now that are going to be Americans would be that they would learn about the Constitution, learn about our rights and liberties that are given to us by God, and that they would want to be Americans. Not that you don't have any of your own personal culture, but that you would learn to, to love this country and to appreciate it and want to preserve it. I don't think that's happening. Um, I don't see people wanting to preserve what we have here. It seems everybody wants to tear the country up and go in a different direction, um, other than the direction that we're, like, the thing that made you want to come here in the first place. Um, the thing he said about people who are here illegally wanting to, uh, or, or feeling like this is their country and it belongs to them already. I understand that's La Ra what La Raza preaches and that's what is on Univision and, and, you know, Spanish TV, it, it, it Spanish speaking TV. It, it's like, this is, this land was always theirs. It's going to be theirs again. They're going to take over the whole of America. And I just caution people, you can take it over. It might even be that the judgment, you know, I, I hate it. I don't, I don't want America to be in judgment, but we've seen so many times in the Bible where nations fell under judgment. And part of the judgment was that some of the women and the children were carried away into slavery. The young boys, the, the, you know, the, the young men um, carried away into slavery. Look at, look, at the, look at Daniel. He was carried away by the Assyrian king to serve because he was of a noble family and handsome and intelligent. He took all of the noble uh, sons, the handsome, intelligent ones were all taken away and trained in the ways of Assyria, trained in, you know, idol worship and all of the ways of their culture. And he was still able to make a huge mark for for the kingdom because he refused to adopt their ways. He learned everything that they told him to learn, but he refused to become one of them. And that's the thing here. So, you know, the, the idea that you can come in with your own cultural norms like Middle Easterners or people from Guatemala or whatever, you come in with your cultural norms and you want to be in America, but you want to live like you're in Honduras or the Middle East, means you're going to turn the place you're living in into the Middle East, which will mean at some point you'll be trying to get out of here and go somewhere else. I don't know if you guys saw in the news, Canada is no longer accepting refugees or immigrants from America because they know people are coming into America and they're like, well, we don't know what we're going to do under Donald Trump. So they want to go up to Canada because they think it'll be easier for them to get citizenship there. But Canada's like, no, you ain't. You're coming up here. We don't want all of you uh, rejects from America. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? In other words, they, the Canadians are saying it's cold up here. It's nothing like your home country. Go back to America or your own home country. You can't come up here. Pretty stunning. All right, we have just enough time to cover this. Set. So the, it's these 234... Um, House Democrats and two Republicans who've sponsored this bill and the bill is about boys playing girl sports. Now, I don't know why. Um, I, I, I honestly don't know why. Why do, why do boys need to play 
girls' sports because they're no good at boys' sports? <sighs> so never mind that it's Title IX. It would be completely obliterated in how many years women and men work together to try to get a program through public schools that would fund sports for girls. So girls softball teams, girls basketball teams, not because they're all going to go play professional sports, but because it's really fun for kids to play on teams with kids who are similar in size and age and ability to teach them teamwork and sportsmanship and all of that. And they're going to obliterate all of that for a teensy weetsy little exchange. Um, for a teensy weensy tiny little bit of people who clearly they don't have their mental acuities in proper order. So just that's not right. I know it's, it's like one of those things where we could go into it for, for ages and ages and ages, but I'm just not going to, it's not right. We shouldn't be doing that. And it's gotta be stopped. I'm, I'm hoping that the Senate will stop it. Um, so quickly, one more thing, and we didn't cover this the day of Ilhan Omar, because I'm I have to be really careful how much time I give to AOC and Omar and Tlaib because they're morons, right? And if they could, they would dominate every show every day with their moronic and idiotic comments. We can't allow that to happen. But Omar said that 9-11 was when some people did something, and she is getting roasted for it. She's facing a huge backlash. After her speech at a Muslim rights group event, which she said the 9-11 the attacks were some people did something. She was talking at a CARE fundraiser last month. She said other Muslim Americans should make people uncomfortable with their activism and presence in, in society. Now, I just, first of all, I don't get this at all. You're wearing the headscarf of oppression and you want to make other people uncomfortable with your presence. It seems like her speech would be, Let's assimilate and let's make ourselves Americans because we love it here. And let's make other Americans comfortable with us by being American. It doesn't mean we have to give up our culture entirely, but there are some things about being in America that are really beneficial to us. And we should, we should, we should participate. We should do those things. Instead, she's saying they should make people uncomfortable. She said... CARE was founded after 9-11 because they recognized that some people did something and that all of us were starting to lose access to our civil liberties. Again, moron alert. She's on the move. And the backlash is appropriate, I guess. Whatever. When we get back, we'll have John York from the Heritage Foundation. The Ministry of Preborn meets abortion-minded women right where they are. When a young mom sees her baby on ultrasound, she's 80% more likely to keep her baby. And I got to hear and see my baby for the first time. Hearing the heartbeat made me cry. And it was certain that I was going to keep my baby forever. This mom chose life for her baby. She's been such a joy. Her name even means rebirth and sort of being raised up from the ashes. Uh, I now see my daughter and I cannot imagine my life without my happy, lovely, joyful, smart baby, and I'm so grateful. Preborn runs and leads Christian pregnancy centers all over the country. To find out more, go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Or dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 and say baby. Your love can save a life. 
This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. The millennial generation has a much more positive view of socialism than the previous generation. One survey found that a majority of those aged 18 to 29 had positive feelings about socialism compared to capitalism. There are a number of reasons for their perspective. First, their teachers and textbooks teach about the evils of capitalism. And if that is not enough, the popular media reinforce those ideas. Think of all the movies and TV programs where a capitalist is evil or the greedy corporation is hurting everyone in society. Second, young people want equality. The naive view of socialism seems to provide fairness, equality, and a level playing field. Millennials who feel that life is unfair gravitate to socialism because it seems to provide help for those hurt in a free market society. Third, they haven't done the math. It's easy to argue for free college tuition when you aren't paying for it. It's easy to let the government pay for everything until you realize you are the government. One article that appeared in the Washington Post had this headline, Millennials like socialism until they get jobs. Here are two suggestions about how to get the younger generation to rethink their ideas about socialism. First, millennials don't like other people telling them what to do. In a socialist economy, the leaders are constantly telling you and the economy what to do. Second, a small group of bureaucrats are making most of those economic decisions. Ask them if they've ever tried to get anything done with a committee. Now expand that to the millions of economic decisions that a committee of bureaucrats need to make. History, logic, and personal experience illustrate why socialism doesn't work and is harmful to people in general and the society at large. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. For a free copy of Kirby's booklet, A Biblical View on Socialism, go to viewpoints.info slash socialism. That's viewpoints.info slash socialism. You can download episodes of Stacy on the Right from the podcast page on AFR.net or urbanfamilytalk.com. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome, 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 welcome to the program. Thank you so much for being here. Hit the subscribe button at StacyOnTheRight.com. You can find um, the live stream of the show. You can find columns that I've written and also other cool content like a list of President Trump's accomplishments and also an ongoing list that I've been compiling of all the uh, sexual assaults that have occurred at Target's because we're still running that boycott of Target over here at American Family Association. Yeah, that's us. We're, I'm a part of that whole action. Haven't set foot in a Target in almost six years, um, and I won't. And I've even got the kids in on that action. One of our children, is she still mourns the days when we used to be able to go in there and buy a dress for $21.99, and those clothes would last for four or five years or more. She still has some dresses from back then that still look amazing. It's sad, but we have to do what we have to do. So <laughs> right now it's my pleasure to welcome John York from the Heritage Foundation. John, thank you for joining us today. Hi, thanks, Stacey. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so I'm so excited to speak with you because I'm not a lawyer and I don't play one on TV. But I've had people emailing me about the national popular vote effort. And so I read a few things and I just felt really sketchy about discussing it without having some real like firepower from the Heritage Foundation. So that's what you're bringing <laughs> to this party. You're bringing the guns. So tell us. Well, I hope I, hope I can uh, I hope I can do that. I hope I can oblige. I'm not <laughs> a lawyer either, but I, I've looked into this a, a fair amount, and it seems pretty unconstitutional to me. Okay. The details are, um, as you probably know, 13 states, most recently Delaware, have signed on to what's called the National Popular Vote Resolution, which which is basically they agree 
to cast their electoral college votes um, behind whomever wins the most votes nationwide, not whomever wins the most votes in their state. Now, as your listeners probably know, the electoral college, uh, most states give all of the electoral college votes that they have, which is equal to the number of House of Representatives members they have and the number of senators they have, um, to whoever gets 50% plus one in, or the most votes uh, just statewide. Okay. This would be a radical change, of course, because if enough states sign on to this resolution, whoever it wouldn't really matter that we'd have, have an electoral college. This agreement between the states would determine the winner of the election. So what would happen then? Because they're setting this up so that if they can get the 270, so enough states to get to 270 votes, then they would have effectively changed the right. Constitution by, but without using the normal mechanism, which is to go through Congress and have two-thirds of Congress ratify it, and I think it's, what, two-thirds of the Senate as well for a constitutional right. amendment? three-quarters of the states. Oh, right, right. So that would be, <laughs> yeah. have, to get a constitutional amendment passed would be pretty much impossible because you have all sorts of states that have, um, that know that they're, they would be essentially ignored. Mm-hmm. There was a popular vote. They would have to sign on to create uh, or to get rid of the Electoral College. So this is a kind of an end around. Um, but, but yeah, it's unconstitutional because of another uh, clause of the Constitution. It's called the Interstate Compact Clause, which says that um, any agreement like this between the states has to be agreed to or ratified by Congress, but by a simple majority vote. So it would be much easier uh, than an amendment. So is that why they're doing it? Because they want a simple majority vote and they think yeah. they can win that? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely the plan because an amendment's off the table. It's just not going to happen. So this is this is a, a way of of getting there without uh, having to to hit that high hurdle. Um, and like I said, it's unconstitutional except for uh, if Congress, by a simple majority vote, I suppose, or maybe sixty votes with a filibuster, um, passes on it, which would be a disaster. But like you said, they have to get to two seventy because if you have two major candidates, that's the that's the mark at which you get elected because uh, there's 538 electoral college votes and they're up to 184 now. So that's, you know, they're more than halfway there. Right. But so can, first of all, can they get there? Cause I think the explanation you've given has been, it's, it's fantastic. Cause you have to kind of remind us uh, it's been, a, a, I won't say how many years since I had a civics class, but <laughs> clearly not recently. Um, and even though I read up on it a little bit to try to talk about it, I still felt like the, I felt like there was a piece of it for my understanding that was missing. And, and I think that piece is, this is a question. Can they get to 270 with the current lay of the land? I know Trump is a kind of an instigating factor because some people hate him so much. They'll do anything, right. but can they get there? I don't think so. It's mostly blue states that have signed on only one purple state has, which is Colorado. Um, I guess depending on how you count Rhode Island. Basically, it's blue states. And I think it's more of a protest vote than anything. I think it's, you know, like you said, Trump won the Electoral College vote but lost the popular election. Of course, who knows if he had been running for a popular majority, how he would have done. Obviously, it changes how you're going to campaign. But nonetheless, that's what happened in 2016. I think a lot of these states are uh, signing on as kind of a sign of protest. But but to get a red state on board would be seemingly impossible because in recent history, 
uh, Republicans have done better in the Electoral College because um, the Republican Party is is popular in many regions of the country, whereas the Democratic Party is is really popular on the coasts. Well, and isn't it because that's the race? <laughs> I tend oh, to see yeah. the Republicans as being so so practical; it almost hurts them. So if <laughs> if the race was the popular vote. The Republican Party would, from the platform committee on up and out in every direction, every little, you know, GOP chair and every precinct, every committee person, they would all begin to strategize for winning the popular vote. But since it's the Electoral College, the strategy is to win the Electoral College. And that is what every person, every foot soldier, every get out the vote person, they're trying to win the Electoral College. So it really is a, a situation of where. Whatever the actual game board, the rules for the game board is laid out are, is what the Republican Party is going to go for, where the Democrats, like Hillary Clinton, didn't even seem to be aware that she needed to win states' electoral <laughs> college votes, right? right. <laughs> there was no Republican who was confused about that. So it, it's, right. it's weird. Right. Yeah. Well, it's it, – yeah, that's number one. It's like it's not – you would play football very differently if the goal was getting the most first downs. It's not. No right. one ever says – <laughs> oh, well, you know, I won the game because I, we we advanced the ball the slowest across the, you know, no, it's whoever gets the most touchdowns. Right. So um, you're exactly right. And the other thing is you, you, that you point to is different um, electoral systems create different incentives for the parties before November, the candidates before November, and politicians afterwards. And the incentives that you would have with a national popular vote would be very bad because you'd be focusing on the major cities where the population centers are. And, uh, and that's, that's much worse than the current system, which forces people to focus on swing states, of which there's many. And it's not the same swing states from election to election. And swing states have rural areas, suburban areas, and urban areas. Um, so, so it requires candidates to campaign across all those different sorts of regions. Whereas you go to a national popular vote, the only people that are going to know there's an election going on are people in New York City and L.A., maybe people in Chicago, I guess. Well, Florida. They're people, yeah, right, so Florida, they, right, they would, Miami, they would go guess, to Florida. Yeah, yeah they, they would go to the top. You could take the list of top 10 metros by radio yeah. market, and those would be the top 10 cities that would receive campaign right. efforts. And yeah, everyone exactly. else would media market. Yeah, and everyone else would be completely unaware. Like here in Missouri, because we're number 22 now, when we moved here 20 years ago, uh, we were a 17 market, I think. And now we're 22 due to population loss because we've had a bunch of uh, corporate headquarters move out. Like I think 33 corporate headquarters have moved out of St. Louis in 20 years. And so a corporate headquarters means maybe 500 to 1,000 employees and their wives and kids and, you know, or husbands and kids and dogs and the whole household <laughs> leave the area. So, you know, that that results in a lot of population loss, which means our market has gone down significantly. Still a decent-sized city, but by no means are, are, is anyone going to come campaign here when they could be in Chicago or right. Washington, D.C., because uh, the D.C. metro is enormous. It's a number 10 market. Right. Yeah, or seven. Elizabeth, seven. Elizabeth Warren made this crazy point that uh, she was in Mississippi, and she said, well, you know, Candidates don't campaign in places like Mississippi because you're not a swing state. But there's no electoral scheme where candidates are going to travel around the 4,000 counties in the country. They're going to focus on the biggest uh, bang for their buck. And you said it. They're, going to, they're not going to go to the 22, the media market that's 22nd or 17th because they don't have an unlimited amount of money or time. So they're going to focus on the 
uh, two or three or five or ten biggest cities. And those cities, year after year after year, are going to pretty much get the focus of candidates and then probably the focus of, like you said, it. the Republican Party is going to focus its entire message and platform on winning those cities. So will the Democrats. And that's pretty, that would be a pretty bad situation. Well, I could see a situation in which, if it was just about the coast, the middle of the country might say, we don't want to be a part of the United States anymore. We, you know, we, we don't have any say in the elections. We know all we do is pay tax and help support these, you know, whatever the ideas are that the cities want. We want to be in our own country. And I could see people in, you know, this part of the country, especially knowing what we're like out here. We're nice and we make great neighbors, but we are not yeah. willing to be ignored. I would not want to be a part of a country like that. And, and I know there, there's a lot more. It's really difficult for a state to secede from the union. But I think people aren't understanding the unintended consequences of this nincompoopery. It's just the, these are not even good ideas. They're not, they're not even ideas. I shouldn't say good ideas. They're not even ideas because an idea has to be something new that's being proposed that has a probability or possibility of working. And the stuff that people are proposing, giving only three areas of the country, all of the power over how we live. That's just crazy. Right. Yeah. I mean, the founders were smart. They devised a scheme where states, have a lot of power in themselves. So we have a federalist scheme. We also have Senate, the Senate, where states have equal representation. Mm-hmm. And then the Electoral College, where even a small state has a guaranteed three Electoral College votes out of 538. That's not nothing. So you have these schemes of representation that are well-suited for a continent-sized country. The only countries where you have really a national... Uh, no uh, state or regional representation are quite small mm-hmm. and and um and not nearly as diverse in terms of their cultures. We have such a huge country, and how much does a person uh, in Missouri or North Dakota or Wyoming want to be governed in every instance by people in New York City or l a those that's a totally different mindset and culture and and uh, the founders understood, I think, that there'd be a lot of regional diversity. And thank goodness a lot of their um, constitution remains un, um, unadulterated <laughs> to include yeah, the Electoral College. Exactly, John. I, I, it just makes me think because of uh, cause I, I do think that Republicans would obviously, because they want to win, they would change the way they campaign. But it always reminds me of back when Roy Blunt was running for the Senate for the first time. And he literally, so what, what other senators do, like Claire McCaskill, she went to Cape Girardeau, Kansas City, and St. Louis. And she just, I mean, she hit every single little municipality in St. Louis and Cape Girardeau and Kansas City. She went to the rural areas, but she didn't spend a ton of time out there because she knew her votes weren't there. She knew if she could win the, the you know, inner, the, the, basically the, the big metro areas, she could probably win. But she, Roy Blunt never ran against her. He ran for the, the other senatorial seat. What he did was he hit every county in the state of Missouri, specifically the rural ones. He hit every one of them three times, three visits to every single county in the rural parts of Missouri. And I remember driving across the state um, and Missouri. I mean, it's not tiny, but it's not as big as Texas by any means. So I'm driving across. And the further out I went, the more like literally building sized Roy Blunt signs I saw. And I began to realize that what he was doing was he was making sure that he would win every single county 
to make up for the parts of St. Louis, Kansas City, and Cape Girardeau that are very liberal that he knew he couldn't win. And there's a lot of votes in the outstate here. Like, we, we only have, like, 5 million people or so, but out of the 5 million, right. there are a lot of them who live out in the rural areas, and he could lock down by going to, you know, a, a fish fry or a dinner or something and a barbecue. He could hit three of those and lock that entire county down, and he did. And he's, he has not been in any danger of losing his seat since he, you know, he's, he's uh, I think, on his second term now. It, it, so he figured out the lay of the land and how he could win, and that's how he went about it. I remember when Greitens was running his campaign, he was guaranteeing himself the veterans' vote, which is very diverse in Missouri. Not not every veteran votes for a Republican or what have you. But I guess right. what I'm saying is people who want to win figure out the strategy that will yield them the most votes. And the, what the Democrats want is to put all of the strategy into three areas, which will right. ultimately disenfranchise some Democrats as well. Oh, totally. Well, what you point out, I like the, the looking at governor's races, too. I think it shows two different things. One, um, that a state is small enough a unit where if you're focusing on swing states, you can really travel around and hit every um, rural area. And you see it all the time when candidates are traveling around Iowa or when Trump was traveling around mm-hmm. Michigan. Hillary didn't really make much of an effort. Mm-hmm. And you, you see candidates traveling around to local diners, et cetera. Um, So the fact that they're focusing in on these swing states, there's nothing divinely ordained about Ohio. I mean, why is that? Why why do they have such an outsized role? Well, you know, they they won't in maybe two elections or three elections. They happen to be a swing state now. They're taking their turn. But what's really good is that candidates, uh, because every vote really matters in Ohio, really are forced to travel around every county in that area. And so they might not travel to Peoria, Illinois, but they're traveling to Mount Vernon, Ohio, and there's probably a lot of similar interests there. So that's a really good thing. The other thing it shows is you hit the nail on the head. If, you're, if you want to know what a national popular vote um, uh, leads to, look at a state like Illinois or a state like New York where you have a mm-hmm. major population um, center <laughs> and rural the rest of the place. And you see that Chicago and New York City get the bulk, the, not just the bulk, almost all the attention. So... New York Times, I think, uh, might have been the Post, ran a story where it showed where uh, Andrew Cuomo had traveled uh, during the eight years he's been governor. He hasn't visited three counties at all. He visited another 10 counties once. He's visited New York City 601 times and 90 uh, visits to Nassau County, 59 to Suffolk. So, uh, yeah, that, that's what we have. We'd have a system like <laughs> New York or Illinois, and that's no good. I don't think- It'd be horrible, horrifying. Hey, John, John York of the Heritage Foundation, you were awesome. Thank you for joining us today and, and giving us the straight scoop on that. Uh, we'll be back with more right after this. This is Uncommon Moments. Here's former Super Bowl winning NFL coach Tony Dungy and his wife Lauren sharing from their book Uncommon Marriage. When I coached in Indianapolis, Lauren and I lived apart for about 18 months. It was tough. One of the biggest challenges for Lauren was trying to keep me connected with the kids. She had to be creative to make it work. Our love and commitment to each other and our family brought us through. But that's not to say those months were fun. Often our love had to be sacrificial. Both of us needed patience and stamina. With Christ at the center of our home, we committed our family to prayer even if it was just a quick prayer on the phone. Prayer should be a priority. For Tony and me, it's the key to a strong marriage. 
Tony and Lauren Dungy, authors of Uncommon Marriage, learning about lasting love and overcoming life's obstacles together. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. Hi, this is John from uh, Olive Branch, Mississippi. I just wanted to say that uh, you guys have really blessed me. Uh, I've been listening for a few months now, and it is so, it's been so needed and so, uh, just so uh, needed in, in my life and in my uh, wife's life. We both listen to you guys as much as we can. And it's, it's just great to hear some strong, unapologetic witnesses for the Lord that stand on his word as opposed to standing on the shifting sands of the culture. So I just wanted to tell you guys, thank you for being a blessing. Um, we tell people uh, all the time about you guys. And um, just, just keep on doing what you're doing. We really appreciate it. Urban Family Talk presents Sheridan 2019. Starting Tuesday, April 23rd, it's time to take a stand. A stand in the gap. Media Minute with Howard Kurtz. Social media giants have become strikingly unpopular. That according to a new NBC Wall Street Journal poll. Check this out. Six in ten Americans say they don't trust Facebook to protect their personal information. 57% of Americans say they agree that social media sites like Facebook and Twitter do more to divide the country. 55% social media do more to spread lies and falsehoods. 61% think social media do more to spread unfair attacks and rumors against public figures and corporations. There are so many self-inflicted wounds here. These companies, especially Mark Zuckerberg's company, used to be admired, now not so much. But this is the one that really gets me. 82%, according to this poll, say social media sites do more to waste people's time. Sorry, America, nobody is forcing you to spend time on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat. That one is on you, not the people who provide the services. With the Media Minute, Howie Kurtz, Fox news this is stacy on the right with stacy washington on american family radio and urban family talk for months we're still waiting but i think there's a bigger problem in the congress we have to be able to rely on the intelligence committee and the leadership of that committee because as the american people know every member of congress does not see every piece of intelligence I have filed legislation today sent to the House that Adam Schiff needs to be removed from the Intelligence Committee because how are the rest of us supposed to be able to rely on a man who you just showed lied to the American people when he said that there wasn't spying or when he lied and said there was actual evidence of collusion or clear evidence of collusion. If Adam Schiff is able to review covert operations and intelligence and if we have to be able to rely on his representations, our whole system is broken. I mean, it would be like putting Lori Laughlin in charge of the College Board. It would be like no, it's right. putting Jesse Smollett in charge of the hate crime division of the FBI. You know, we have got to remove Adam Schiff from the intelligence. Mm-mm-mm. So uh, that was pretty fantastic as Representative Getz talking about his resolution that he introduced to remove Adam Schiff from the House Intel Committee. He's so right about what he said. And it's not because I'm, I'm not saying this because Schiff is a Democrat. I'm saying because the, the Democrats control the House. They get to choose their person. But Schiff has said things that have basically made him a you can't place any confidence in him. You can no longer be confident in what he says because of the comments that he's made. And if other members on the House uh, committee feel that way, then uh, especially the House Intel Committee, then the Democrats should replace him with someone that could be trusted. It's that simple. 
that's not partisanship. That's just co- good common sense. Now, you might remember that uh, we, we had some audio from Attorney General Barr saying that he felt, yes, it was spying. It absolutely was spying that happened on the, the Trump campaign. Um, if you look up the definition of spying, what happened is what the definition says of spying. It's spying is spying. You know, no, no need to be shocked about it. Um, but James Clapper, just in case you're wondering, because you don't listen to or watch CNN or MSNBC, you know, I martyr myself in that area for you. I watch it. I listen to it. Um, the clips anyway. And many, many times James Clapper said that Donald Trump was a traitor, that he was a puppet of the Russians, that he was someone who could not be trusted. He not only did he need to impeach, but that he would go to jail. He made statements that were so incendiary and so outside of the purview of someone who used to head up a major government agency. It was shocking to me that they kept having him on. Even more shocking to me is that they're still having him on to make comments like what he said here. He says it's stunning and scary that Barr would raise spying allegations. Listen to this man. I mean, it's as if he's never heard himself or maybe if he can hear himself, it just the words are in another language and he can't comprehend the things that he's hearing coming out of his own mouth. It's number two. Well, I thought it was uh, both stunning and, and, and scary. Uh, I was uh, amazed at that and, and rather disappointed that uh, the attorney general would say such a thing that, you know, the term spying uh, has all kinds of negative connotations. And uh, I, I, I have to believe he, he chose that term uh, uh, deliberately. And I think it's incredible that if he has concerns, he could easily have, on his first day on the job after his confirmation, asked his, his own IG, the Inspector General of the Department of Justice, for a briefing on his preliminary findings who, uh, in the course of his investigation, that is the IG's investigation, into whether there was any wrongdoing by, by the FBI. And I think it would have been far more appropriate for him to just defer to that investigation uh, rather than uh, postulating with apparently no evidence. He just has a, a feeling that uh, there was spying against the uh, campaign. <laughs> oh, so no further commentary needed. Dude is just, first of all, why? Why do they still keep, like, like why do they let him come on some more to say some more crazy stuff? Uh, I don't know. I mean, we'd have to ask somebody from over there. So you might have also heard that uh, pivoting over to Bernie bros and Bernie Sanders, that Bernie Sanders has said, you know, he's had to acknowledge that he's a millionaire, millionaires and billionaires. And he is saying to Americans, hey, you could be a millionaire, too, if you write a hugely successful book, as I did. That's what made me a millionaire. Um, And that's why I own two homes and a boat. And so he's he's been very like. This is something he has to address because he's a socialist. So instead of him giving all of his money away and making sure that we understand that he really believes in the things that he says he believes in, he instead is now trying to tell us that, well, it was capitalism that helped him make a million dollars, but he's still a socialist anyway. And in addition to still being a socialist, he wants to take away your health care. And I don't mean that in a bombastic or facetious way. I don't mean that in an incendiary way where I'm taking something that he said and blowing it out of proportion. I mean, he's literally said, we played the audio, I think, yesterday on the show, where he said that if you get Medicare for all, then health insurers would be reduced to insuring little cosmetic surgeries like nose drops or or ear reductions. And he wasn't being funny when he said it, even though it sounds kind of funny when I say it. 
He was not joking. Now, you might think, well, how would he get that done? Well, he doesn't get that done right now. And the poll numbers don't, it doesn't look like he's got the commanding lead over Donald Trump that was, you know, much vaunted and ballyhooed last go around when Democrats were screaming at the top of their lungs that if only the DNC hadn't rigged the election for Hillary Clinton, then Bernie Sanders would have handily trounced Donald Trump. I don't think he would have. I really don't. But now we have poll numbers showing that he's not running ahead of Donald Trump, nor is Joe Biden. Now, there are some uh, Republicans who are, are undecided, ones who voted for Donald Trump. So I can't even say they're Republicans. A lot of people who aren't Republicans voted for Donald Trump. There's a good, as a nice sized chunk of them who they're not sure what they're going to do next go around. But they might be the ones who are always the holdouts, who never make their decision until the week before or a couple of days before the election. And so they're always the ones who have that significant representation. They call themselves swing voters, independents, what have you. Um, But they're coming from the president's current coalition. So it's troubling, but it doesn't mean defeat. Now, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, he was not mincing words when he was discussing. He was asked if they would consider legislation like Medicare for all. Now, we've heard all of the numbers about how expensive it is. We know that single-payer healthcare-type countries, the rich people come to our country to get health insurance. We know the, the wait times are extremely long. And we've seen a, a very troubling rash of decisions out of the European Union's high court against parents who want to take their kids for experimental treatments outside the country. And the European Union and their court, basically, they own those kids. So if parents want to do something that the European court or the doctors don't want them to do, even if it could save the child's life, the European Union and the doctors actually have more power than the parents. That's single payer for you. Mitch McConnell is having none of it. And y'all know how sketchy I am on Mitch. I'm, I appreciate him when he's awesome. But when he goes against the president, I just, I'm not with Mitch when he does that. His wife, Elaine Chow, she's pretty awesome. But Mitch... I'm very iffy with him. I'm with him when he's good. When he's not good, I'm not with him. Here he is being kind of good uh, in a speech to a bunch of doctors, an association of doctors. It's number one. What really frustrates me are when the obstacles that get in your way are political headwinds created right here in Washington. You've all heard about the latest fad among my Democratic colleagues across the aisle, the new idea that their presidential candidates are tripping all over themselves to embrace Medicare for all, a radical one-size-fits-all attempt to remake the health sector, not to mention the personal and family decisions of literally millions and millions, according to grand designs dreamt up in New York City and San Francisco. Of course, I don't need to explain to any of you that it would actually be Medicare for none. It would hollow out the Medicare program that seniors rely on until nothing was left but the label and then slap, slap a new label, a government plan that every American would literally be forced into. In fact, my Democratic colleagues are so convinced the American people will love their new government plans that their legislation would make competing private insurance illegal. It's not exactly a vote of confidence if they feel compelled to outlaw any competition. This is what the Democratic Party is rushing toward. Let me tell you that I'm often asked what being the majority leader of the Senate is like. And the best answer I've been able to come up with is a little bit like being the groundskeeper at a cemetery. 
Everybody's under you, but nobody's listening. <laughs> so what is it that the majority leader of the Senate gets to do that the other 99 don't? It's to decide what we're gonna do. And if I'm majority leader of the Senate in 2021, we will not be doing Medicare for none. And he just made the case there for leaving the Republicans in charge of the Senate in 2021. And he used something that was, it, it is just doctors, if you talk to them, if, if, if your doctor isn't afraid to talk to you about something that doesn't have to do with your health care, if you know a physician personally where you can speak to them outside of their office and, and just ask them, what, what's going on in your industry right now? Like, do you feel confident or do you feel like the proposals that are being brought forward by the Democrats have any merit? Would you prefer to be in a single payer, you know, a type of an environment? Uh, or, or, or do you prefer the private health insurance model? Or do you prefer a hybrid? What, what would you like to see? Ask a doctor that you know that and, and hear what they have to say. Obviously, their political ideology will have something to do with it. But for the most part, the doctors that I've spoken to that I've been able to actually just take a couple of minutes and ask them about it, they all tend to be against government being in between them and their patient. And the reason is because you already have the health insurance company between the patient and the doctor. Because sometimes health insurance companies say, we won't approve that inhaler. We won't approve that EpiPen. The EpiPen we prefer is this one. And the doctor will say, well... I prescribe this one because it's actually, you know, $14 cheaper or $140 cheaper or whatever. Or I prescribe this one because the clinical trials on this one are, to, in my opinion, it has more merit. This is a better option for my patient. But the health insurance company says we cover this. And I, this isn't stuff I'm making up. This has happened to us where we get to the pharmacy and we're using our pharmacy benefits that we pay for. And she says, oh, we just looked. Yeah, we can't fill this one. Are you okay if we give you this version of the inhaler? I'm like, why? Your insurance company prefers this one. Well, just, just for one second, can we all stop for a second? Uh, doctor of pharmacology, uh, doctor of you know pediatrics, mother, meaning person God used to birth human into the world, human that's been birthed that has asthma. All of us have actually met. Me and the child and the doctor have sat down and talked about what the best treatment protocol is. We have not ever seen anybody who works for our health insurance company. For all I know, they could have a bunch of robots running that thing. Now, we're happy to have insurance. We do not want to give up our insurance. But when is the last time someone from your insurance company went to the doctor with you and your kid has, you know, just multiple rolling asthma attacks and you and the doctor are trying to figure out what to do? At what point do you hear a little light tap on the door and someone from the insurance company comes in and says, you know, I just wanted to come in and hear what the situation is here because I kind of have a feeling you're going to write a couple of prescriptions today. No, you just get a, a, basically an automated response back at the actual CVS pharmacy or Walgreens or wherever you are. And the doctor of pharmacology strolls over and says, your insurance covers this inhaler. Now, apparently that inhaler works, but it's not as good as the one the doctor wanted her to have. So if I want her to have it, I got to pay for it out of pocket. If I want to use my insurance benefits that I've already paid for, I got to use the one they want. They haven't met my child. They haven't listened to her heart or her lungs or her breathing. They don't, they know her history, meaning they know how many times we've been to the doctor and how many times they've had to pay out for preventative and how many times we've accessed the HSA to pay for our portion to, to meet the deductible, but they've never met her or her doctor. 
They don't know her background or history with asthma. And so if that infuriates you, because it certainly infuriated me when I was standing there, I was thinking to myself, I bet you somebody who works at that health insurance company has a kid who has asthma. I wonder what they do when they realize that the company that they work for isn't going to give them the inhaler that the doctor prescribed. They have to take some other inhaler. I wonder what they do. Do they pay the difference or do they just go with it because they work there and they think they know best or they know they know best? Now, replace that health insurer with some government bureaucrat who probably should have been fired 10 years ago for incompetence and dereliction of duty, who probably spends the majority of the day surfing pornographic websites and they can either reject or accept your claim based on which side of the screen they feel like pushing today. Zero accountability. Again, someone you're never going to meet who doesn't know your child's history, doesn't know your history, has never spoken to your kid's doctor. And oh, by the way, one more thing. Also, may be inclined to deny your claim based upon the fact that you don't share the same political ideology that they share. At least with the health insurer that we're paying, they know at some point, if we get frustrated enough, we can go to our employer and say, you know what? We're not having a good response with this. And if enough employees complain, a employer, especially these large employers, they'll switch. The small ones will too. If too many employees are dissatisfied, they'll switch in a heartbeat and insurers don't want that. So they try to keep the the hubbub to a minimum. How do you get rid of a bad employee in the government that keeps denying your claims because you're not a Democrat when you can't fire somebody in the government? That's single payer for you. You can ram your head up against that government brick wall as often as you want to and you'll end up in the hospital and that brick wall will stand. Never put the government between you and your doctor. All right, that's the show for today. God bless you from the heartland and have a fantastic evening.